If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Sadly, we're moving on from Philippians, such a timely book. And we're going to be starting a new series today called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm actually going to start at the end of chapter 12. So hear these words from the Apostle Paul. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, excuse me, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be known fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you've probably heard this verse read many times. Where? At a wedding. I hate to burst your butt. Now, I read this at every wedding I do. I love this. I love this chapter. I think it has a lot to say to married couples. It's not about marriage. It has a lot to do with marriage, but it's not about marriage. If you know anything about this church in, uh, in Corinth, it was an urban church. And uh, it was an urban church that Paul planted. And if you know anything about cities, cities tend to attract gifted people. They tend to attract ambitious people, talented people. So the context here immediately of this passage is uh, written to a church to instruct them on how to live in community, in a diverse community of talented, ambitious, gifted people. How do you exercise those gifts and that ambition in a way that doesn't lead to disunity, but rather builds up the church in love? So the immediate context is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about spiritual gifts, and 1 Corinthians 14 about spiritual gifts. And sandwiched in between, Paul says, let me show you how you exercise those gifts. And he walks us into this danger, this danger that is a temptation for all churches, but especially, I think, urban churches where you have a lot of gifted, talented, ambitious, diverse communities and people living together, trying to live together for Christ. He walks us into the danger of a gifted church without love. See, this is a group of passionate people who, who were passionate for spiritual mystical experiences with God, to exercise their spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge and the supernatural. But their love for God was disconnected from their love for 
each other, for other real people in the community. You could say they had a high IQ, but a low EQ. Now, this is the heart of emotionally healthy spirituality. This, this series is, um, is really lifted from a book. The title of the series is lifted from a book that's had a huge impact. God has used this book profoundly in my own life to shift my own orientation and how I show up in my relationships with other people. It was written by a man named Pete Scazzaro, who's a pastor in New York City. The book's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. You can see it there. I encourage you, if you've never read it, pick it up. It's, it's worth the read. It's a really great book. But here's kind of the thesis of this book and the thesis of what we want to kind of pursue together over the next couple weeks um, and then into January after Advent as we finish the series is, is simply what he says here. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Let me read that again. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. This is exactly what Paul's saying here in this passage. Paul is deconstructing some of the faulty measures that we use for evaluating spiritual maturity. He goes right after him here in the verse three verses. If we were to modernize this and bring this kind of into the contemporary, Paul is critiquing the basic movements of, of Christianity, kind of different tribes here. You could say Paul is on the one hand critiquing and deconstructing the charismatics, right? Paul says, I don't care how much charisma there is in the community. I don't care how visionary your leadership is. You have the faith to, to clear out and to remove mountains and to call people forward to a vision, I don't care uh, if you have the gift of prophecy and you can speak a word for God. I don't care if you have the gift of, of, of you know, tongues, these supernatural giftings and abilities. You have bold faith. If it's not paired with love, it's nothing. Paul would have a critique for the charismatics. Paul would also have a critique for evangelicals. He says, I don't care how much knowledge you have how much information you've taken in about theology, how many Bible verses you've memorized, this kind of cold rationalism that we can fall into when it comes to more cerebral approach to Christianity. Again, Christianity is not less than knowledge, but it's more than cerebral knowledge. It's more than theological information. It's more than just spiritual disciplines for the sake of being disciplined. Paul says that won't do. If it's not paired with love, it's nothing. Paul would have a word also for Maybe many of us here in Broderpool who find ourselves and celebrate the fact that we're missional and we're activists. Paul says there uh, in verse three, if I give away all that I have, in other words, I don't care if you've taken a vow of poverty and you've given all your possessions away to the poor, Paul says. If you give up your body, as another translation says, to be burned, you literally give yourself and you're all in for the cause of social justice and mercy and activism. I don't care how many nonprofits you're starting or partnering with. If it's not in the end paired with love, it's nothing, he says. See, the fundamental problem here in this community was that there was a disconnect between their head and their hands and their hearts, between their inner life and their external behavior, between the ministry they were doing for God, they were busy doing things for God, lots of things in Jesus' name. But there's a disconnect between what they were doing for God and the work God wanted to do in them and through them for the sake of loving each other. Now, skip on down to verse four. 
What's interesting about this list, when Paul goes on to say, this is what love is. What is love? What does it look like to love well? Paul says, love is patient, love is kind, it isn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not arrogant or rude. This is not some kind of abstract table of virtues. Like Socrates and Aristotle and the, and the kind of the, the philosophers of the day had their virtue tables. That's not what's happening. These are not random abstract phrases or concepts that Paul pulls out here. Notice, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, every one of these words Paul uses purposefully. They are characteristics that Paul has already addressed in the letter that are immaturities in the Corinthians' love for each other. They were, in other places, he says, impatient. They were not kind. They were harsh with one another. They were envying one another. They were boasting about their gifts. They were arrogant and rude, resentful, rejoicing in the wrong things. These are not random words. Paul says, these are ways that you're not loving each other. Be aware. <laughs> you think you're loving well, but you're not. See, there, it, it's common for us to experience this disconnect in our spirituality between what's happening in our heads, what's happening in our hearts, what's happening outside, what's happening inside. The best way I can think of to explain this and the dangers of this is uh, one of my least favorite movies, but I've just seen it so many times, and I, I apologize if you like this movie, it's The Titanic. When I was uh, in high school, I was dating a girl who was really into The Titanic. If you know anything, it's not a short movie. I mean, it's like 10 hours long. So I, I went on a date with her to see The Titanic because she wanted me to go, and it was a really interesting movie. I mean, it's, 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 a, there's, it's a metaphor in so many ways. It's a historic event, but it's also an interesting metaphor and a contrast, if you really get into the deeper themes of the movie, between the opulence of the upper deck and kind of what's happening on the lower deck with poverty and the lower, like there's class dynamics in this movie. There's all kind of, kinds of interesting things, and there's a disconnect between what's happening up top and what's happening down below. There's partying on the top, just blissful ignorance of the fact that they've hit an iceberg, right? And I, and I hate to, spoiler alert here, so just close your ears. It's been a really long time since the movie came out, so I apologize. Like, you know, somebody landed on the moon too, right, a while back. So every time I, I, I talk like this about a movie, people get upset. But there's all this partying happening on the upper deck, and on the lower deck, chaos is ensuing, right? Like they hit the iceberg and water is flowing into the cabins, People are running for their lives. They're dying downstairs while everybody upstairs is just, woo, party. But what begins to happen over time is what happens on the lower deck begins to rise to the surface. And the boat eventually, you know, right, capsizes and a lot of people die. Now that's a great picture of what can happen in our spiritual lives. All of this stuff happening on the inside, happening in the lower deck that we're unaware of, we don't want to see, we can't see in our hearts, inside of us, ways that we don't love well. And eventually, like, we come to church and we're like the Corinthians, we're worshiping, we want to use our gifts. We come in and we're 25 and we're excited about being a part of the first church community as an adult. Finally, my parents are not making my faith community decision. And so we come in and we're educated and we've been through you know, whatever fellowship program or you're in whatever mentoring thing and you're gonna use your gifts for the church and we all come in and we're excited and we're celebrating on Sunday. It's like a big Christian rock concert. 
But then we start to live in community with actual real people. Then we get left off of the invite list for the party. Then we can't agree on whether we should wear masks or not wear masks. Then we can't, I mean, like, these things begin to pop up inside these internal issues. And all of a sudden I find anger, bitterness, despair, sadness rising to the surface. The question is, Paul says, how do we navigate that and love each other well? I don't care how gifted you are, Paul says. I don't care how talented your community is. I don't care how educated you are or not. The essence of Christian spirituality, Paul says, is love. How are you loving other people? Right? How are you loving other people? David Benner, Christian author, says this, Love is the acid test of Christian spirituality. If Christian conversion is authentic, we are in a process of becoming more loving. If we are not becoming, and excuse the quote here, I got the word wrong. If we are not becoming, we're all living, hopefully. If we're not becoming more loving, something is seriously wrong. Jesus would say it like this in Matthew 22 when one of the religious leaders asked him about eternal life. What does it mean to flourish Jesus? What does it mean to live and really live well? What is the great commandment in the law? Jesus says to him, love God, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now notice the link between the first half and the second half. And the second is like it. The second is interconnected with it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can't say, I love God, Jesus says, while hating your brother. You can't say, you, and you really can't love your neighbor in the truest and fullest and most, most authentic way unless you love God. Love comes from God. We embody that love and then we love one another. The two go together and they cannot be separated. Galatians 5, Paul would go on to say it like this, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through, say it with me, love. Only faith working through love. That's all Paul says that matters. What does it look like for us to love well? Because we throw that around a lot in Christian circles and communities. But it's not actually, for many of us, our lived reality. We don't experience that or we don't know what it means. It's kind of this vague, abstract kind of word. I love that Paul provides us with such a robust vision for love. Paul's definition of love does not fall into the ditches that we find our definitions of love falling into. On the one hand, love for some of us is sweet, sugary sentimentality. It's just, it's good feelings, good vibes. We talk about vibing with people. On the other hand, Paul says, um, it's not just willpower. Love isn't just an action. It's not something you just will yourself to do where you kind of find this inner strength to just love somebody even though you really don't like them. It's not a white knuckling kind of thing. Notice love, Paul says, is both an inner disposition of the heart. He's talking here about emotions. He's talking about feelings, longings, desires, attitudes, postures of the heart. And it's external action. It's both. It's both inner and external. That's what it means to love. Love is patient. Love is 
kind. Love doesn't envy, doesn't boast, not arrogant, not rude, doesn't insist on its own ways, not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in the wrong things, rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never ends. Literally, it never falls to the ground. That's the translation there. So here's a question we should be asking ourselves regularly as Christians in the church and in our community. What does it look like for me to love well? And conversely, what is getting in the way of me loving God and loving others from a full and free heart? Because love really at the end has to do with your heart, which again is not just can't be reduced to emotions, but certainly includes your affections, your longings, your desires. In the Bible, heart, cardia in the Greek is a word that meant the kind of the executive control center of the body, the person. You see, in order to answer those kinds of questions, it requires us to reconnect with our hearts. Many of us are disconnected from our hearts. We're disconnected from our inner world of emotions, desires, longings, our soul, our spirit, our bodies. We don't listen to our bodies. We don't pay attention to our inner world. Many of us were taught, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, matter of fact, that, that emotions were bad. Emotions are sinful, right? That we should trust facts over feelings, these kinds of things. And we're going to see, no, God actually created us holistically as, yes, physical beings, spiritual beings, intellectual beings, but how about this? Emotional beings. Read the book of Psalms. So we've got to, we've got to reconnect. Loving well means learning to pay attention to your feelings. They're data points that tell you something about your love to pay attention to your story, to pay attention to the family you grew up in, how that shapes the way that you love well or don't love well. You didn't just magically appear in community as a 25 or 35 or 55-year-old person loving the way you do. There are reasons why you love like you do. We're gonna talk about that next week. It means paying attention to why certain people, do you notice this like across different contexts of your lives, certain people in certain situations tend to trigger unhealthy reactions and responses in you. And you think, oh, it's just my roommate. But then you get married and you have four kids, hypothetically. And you begin to realize, oh, that's why I went crazy on my five-year-old or my 12-year-old. When they do this, it's like amazing. Like I see this across all of my relationships. It bothers me. Why? Why do I have such an explosive response? Or why do I want to withdraw when those kinds of things happen and get away from it? Paying attention to our trauma definitely impacts how you love. Paying attention to your limits as a human being. Because here's the reality. If you don't deal with your stuff, if you don't deal with these patterns of resistance, somebody else has to. Your spouse has to. Your children will have to. Your roommates will have to. Your parents will have to. Our society will have to. Now, let me just make an important distinction, since this is kind of an intro sermon to the series. I want to make an important distinction here and define terminology so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Because I know as soon as I use a word like emotional, a phrase like emotional health, some of you get triggered. You get triggered because this feels like self-improvement or narcissistic, you know, kind of self-discovery, psychobabble. You're like, I don't need to focus on emotional health. I'm just fine. Thank you. That may be a sign that actually you're emotionally unhealthy, by the way. 
Everybody else needs to work on this, not me. Let me define emotional health for us so that we're clear about what we're saying and not saying so I'm not misheard by anybody in this community. Emotional health, I would define as this, the capacity to live from an integrated heart, what Jesus is talking about, your heart, your mind, your soul, your body. You're able to love God in an integrated heart that's increasingly experiencing and giving the transforming love of Jesus. That is my definition of emotional health. So don't, don't import your definition. I'm giving you my definition. Okay? Now, to those who might ask the question, it's a fair question. Isn't this just self-improvement? It's the same thing when we talk about the Enneagram. Some of you guys geek out on the Enneagram. We don't mean the same thing you mean when we say Enneagram. Or we talk about any other, like, psychological tool. Disc profiles, okay? Um, We're going to talk in this series about things like self-awareness. You may be familiar with emotional intelligence. It's a very popular business book, and in a lot of ways overlaps with emotional health, but is not exactly the same. You may have heard of words like self-regulation or emotional healing, healing your inner child, things like that. Okay, let me just show you the difference between what we mean and what they mean. Self-improvement, let me throw this up on the screen. Self-improvement says, love and accept yourself. You do you. That is not biblical. Emotional health says, love God, love your neighbor. Now, you do need to take care of yourself. That is very biblical. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you're not loving and caring for yourself. But those are very different. Secondly, self-improvement says self-discovery leads to self-preoccupation and self-fulfillment. This is about me living out of my true self or my deepest self or something like that, whatever I kind of, however I define that in a nebulous way. Emotional health says, no, self-clarity is important, self-awareness is important, but it leads to ultimately humility, self-forgiveness, and self-giving. All self-awareness, all self-clarity is for the purpose of being able to give yourself away. But here's the problem. If you don't know yourself, what are you giving away? Can't give away something that is not solid, that you're not. I mean, I would argue even Jesus and his ability to give himself away. John 13, when he washes his disciples' feet, what what does he say? Knowing who he was and where he came from, he washed their feet. Here's a man who had definite strength and solidity of self, but then gave that away. Self-improvement says we're driven by our inner world. In self-improvement, we're driven by the inner world. So I find all these strong emotions, and I just, I just kind of explode. I kind of vomit my inner world on you all the time. Emotional health says, no, we're to disciple our inner world. We're to steward our inner world. We're to steward our emotions, our minds, our bodies. With self-improvement, the power comes from within, inside of you. This is willpower and kind of uh, inner strength. Emotional health, the power comes from outside of you. It comes from Jesus. Self-improvement, ultimately, I believe, is a bridge to nowhere. It's a dead-end street. Emotional health is a bridge to transformation and renewal. Both reference the self, but with completely different reference points and goals and purposes. Emotional health is about, in my mind, three things. Communion with God. How do I love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength? How do I receive and experience the love of God in my whole person? Which then leads me into community. How do I then love my neighbor as I'm receiving this love? How do I give that away to others And then ultimately, I think emotional health is about mission. 
It's about mission. It's about renewal in the world. How do we live? We live in a moment characterized by emotional regression, anxiety, fear, division, polarization, rage, shame. How do we live with emotional resilience and inject the good news of Jesus into this cultural moment as we move out and not get subsumed and immersed in that emotional regression? It's so easy to lose yourself in it. If you're stressed, if you're exhausted, if that lower deck is filling with water, you can't get along with your own family, your parents, your children, your neighbor. If we are divided in the church, if we are not loving each other well and experiencing transformation, how in the world are we going to offer a transforming presence, shalom, to the world? Can't do it. We can't offer something that we are not experiencing on our own. And so the call then in Paul is to learn to love well. To learn to love well. And that's what Paul is concerned with the rest of this chapter. How do we learn to love well? Paul says, prophecy, tongue, knowledge, all of this is temporary. It will pass away. When we come to see Jesus face to face, when God brings his kingdom to this earth and we live with him for eternity, these things will pass away. Gifts, talent, knowledge, they're important, right? Cultivate those things. But they're going to come to an end. There will be no more need for knowledge and knowing when we know God face to face and we're known by him. We won't need tongues. We won't need prophecy and the supernatural gifts when the supernatural is living among us and flesh, his kingdom. But Paul says the one thing that remains, that's apparently going to remain forever, is love. You are going to love forever. And so Paul's inviting us to become the embodied presence of love to other people. And, and what Paul says is this is a developmental journey. It, it takes time. It's a journey from childhood to adulthood. Our inner world and all the complexities, our heart, our emotion, our desires— have to be discipled, just like our minds, just like the rest of us. And here's what Paul says. Notice in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. Okay, I have four kids. Children are basically what? Like unstable in their thinking and feeling. I mean, that's putting it nicely. Just Paul says there, there's a time in our lives when all of us are children emotionally. But Paul says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul says we must grow up. We must become emotional, spiritual, mental adults. And here's the sad truth. You can be chronologically 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old, and have the emotional maturity of a four-year-old or a 14-year-old. It doesn't magically happen just because you're older. Having birthdays doesn't make you emotionally mature, as we're seeing in lots of different ways in our culture. It's a journey of growing up. Psychologically, the term might be narcissism. M. Scott Peck, one author, says this, we are all born narcissists. Growing out of narcissism is at the very heart of the spiritual journey. Biblically, we might call that self-righteousness or self-centeredness, the doctrine of original sin. We are sinners. The theological term there, Martin Luther says, is incurvitas in se. We are curved in on ourselves. We are bent on wanting our own Way That is the heart of all sin and suffering in the world. And it's what keeps us fundamentally from loving each other well. So we've got to grow up. We've got to recognize first, where am I? And then where do I need to grow? 
So let me just list some of the things. I want to throw these slides up quickly, and, and we'll begin to wrap up on the journey of growth. These are from Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotional Healthy Spirituality. Emotional infants are dependent on others to take care of them. They have great difficulty entering into the world of others. Think about a baby. They can only think about what? Me, mine. I want this now. They're driven by a need for instant gratification. They use others as objects to meet their own needs. For this kind of person, community is an expression of their own needs. I come to community needing you to be something for me. So it's a consuming mentality rather than a giving mentality. That looks very similar. They'll show up and be happy, but in the end, they have a deep need for something that they're coming to community with. Second slide. Emotional children are content and happy as long as they receive what they want. They unravel quickly from stress, disappointments, trials. They interpret disagreements as personal offenses. They're easily hurt. They complain, withdraw, manipulate, take revenge, become sarcastic when they don't get their way. All that's happening downstairs right now. And in this room and in our communities. Emotional adolescents tend to often be defensive. They're threatened and alarmed by criticism. They keep score. They deal with conflict poorly, blaming, appeasing, pouting, going to a third party, or ignoring the issue entirely. They become preoccupied with themselves. They have great difficulty listening to other people's pains, disappointments, or needs. They're critical, judgmental. And then finally, you can see the last slide on emotional adults. I think we can all just agree none of us are there, but um, maybe you think differently. Where do you need to grow? I mean, this was the light bulb for me when I got on this journey about 10 years ago, 11 years ago. We started to plant this church. I was dealing with massive fear and anxiety, some relational challenges in my life, and I began to realize some things that were going on inside of me that were unhealthy. I was not loving well. I was disconnected. I was not present for those who needed me, my family, my wife, my kids. I was super emotionally unhealthy. I was an infant. And it's been a journey the last several years to learn how to move from infancy to childhood, maybe adolescence. I don't know where I'm at right now. Feels better than it did 10 years ago, but I feel like I have a long way to go. So that's what we wanna do in this series is we wanna teach you those skills. These are skills that can be learned. Just like a child has to learn what it looks like to be an adult, you need people to parent you, shepherd you, show you. These are skills that can be learned. And so during this series, we're gonna talk about the following skills. How to understand your family of origin, how that shaped who you are. Again, family of origin, not destiny, but it does shape you. Paying attention to your inner world. How do you begin to pay attention to emotions and disciple your emotions, desires, longings? How do we clarify expectations, stop mind reading, stop telling stories about other people that are probably not all the way true? That's actually a commandment. Don't bear false witness about one another. Listening deeply, living with integrity and integration, becoming a peacemaker. That's what we want to talk about over the next several weeks. Now, as we close, I want to just remind us that the power to do this isn't just about skill building, trying harder, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I look at this list here in 1 Corinthians 13. It's really discouraging, right? Like, Every time I do a wedding and I read this chapter over these couples, I look at these 25, 30, 35-year-olds reading this verse, and I think, oh, that's so sweet. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> like, you still think you can do that. <laughs> you still think you can do that. You have no idea what this is going to look like a year from now, three years from now, seven years from now, 70 years from now, Lord willing. 
Because here's the reality. We always fail at this list. At least I always fail at this list. When it comes to loving God, loving my neighbor fully from the heart, my love is always tinged with what I'll just call enlightened self-interest. I can tell you why it's not actually self-interest, but in the end, it actually is mostly self-interest. What Paul is doing here in chapter 13 is not saying, hey, get better at being kind. Get, Get better at being patient. Try harder. I want you to be patient. Notice Paul doesn't say, I want you to be patient. I want you to be kind. Notice what he says. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What Paul is doing is personifying love. We don't become loving by trying harder. That is a recipe for failure, shame, all day long. We become loving through encountering love. Through encountering power, love is a power and is a person. A power that moves us, a power that changes us. That's how you learn love, right? Like think about your own experience. You only learn love by being loved. Think about a child that is abandoned, neglected their entire lives. They grow up to be what? Super loving, encouraging, attachment-oriented adults? Social workers in the room? Counselors? No. They're cold. They're detached. They're defensive. They have a hard time trusting people. You know what begins to change that and move that needle? When they actually become loved. They experience love. They experience somebody who's patient, somebody who's kind, somebody who's forgiving and overlooking their offenses. We become loving by being loved. Contrast that with a kid who grows up in a safe, secure home where they're loved. And I don't mean love like they're always affirmed. I mean love like they're challenged, but they're loved. That kid moves out into the world as an adult with what we call secure, earned attachment. Like the ability to attach and to love and to trust and to be healthy in their relationships with others. It's the same thing with loving others in community. We learn love by being loved. Only by encountering the love of Jesus Christ. So what you can do with this chapter, if you want a little exercise this week, take this chapter and every time you see love, I want you to put Jesus' name there. This is a mirror of self-examination, yes, but more than that is a window that we look through to see Jesus Christ, his love for us, his death for us, his life for us, his resurrection for us. Jesus is love. These are all amazingly characteristics of God himself. God is patient. That word patient, long-suffering. He's long-suffering with our sin. He's not quick to anger. God is kind rather than harsh. Jesus is, you know, all of these things. He's the perfect embodiment of this chapter. And I, I can't, like, read this without thinking Paul had that in his mind and his heart as he's writing. Jesus is, 1 Corinthians 13. He's patient with the disciples. He's kind towards them. He's loving. His love never fails, even on the cross with a thief who's hung as a criminal. He doesn't look and say, hey, you get what you deserve. Tough, that's life. What does he say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's incredible. That is a love that we don't understand. And so that is a love that we must receive if we're going to love others well. And so the invitation to emotional health and to love, Paul says, is to encounter the love of God in Christ Jesus in the core of your being. 
which means that we have to first repent to turn away from trying to find love anywhere else, to turn away from trying to be our own lords and saviors, to find love in anything other than Jesus Christ. This kind of love is amazing. Paul says it's a love where we're fully known and fully loved. Our greatest desire, to be fully known, fully loved. So we, we must turn away from trying to find love anywhere else. We must receive his love, be fully known and fully loved. And as we do that, day in and day out, we practice the presence, the loving presence of God. We're able to show up in our relationships and practice the presence of other people in healthier ways. We're able to practice being present to our enemies. We're able to practice being present to our spouses, our children, our roommates, our professors, our bosses, our coworkers. The greatest gift we can give to the world church is to be a church and a community who loves well. Experiencing, receiving the love of God, giving the love of God concretely, practically, daily, tangibly with our neighbors. I want to encourage you again this week as we go to communion to take Ephesians 3. If you didn't do this last week or you missed last week, take Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. And I want you to just steep in that. Right? Steep in this admonition, this, Paul, this prayer from Paul that God and the Spirit would grant us to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and being rooted and grounded in love, we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses the knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Take that in. Rejoice in that. Delight in that. Meditate on that. Let that be your reality this week. And allow that to transform your wounds, your trauma, your past, your emotions, your desires, your longings. As you encounter that reality more and more and more in your core, you will be transformed. You will be changed. You will become a person who loves others well. Let's pray together. And then we're going to sing in response to this. And we're going to take communion and confess our sin. We'll send you out. Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you for this invitation to love well. God, if we are just a gifted community, but we don't love well, we're nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So God, strengthen us, empower us, commune with us, teach us in the core of our being what it means to be lovers, to love you, to feel you, to feel secure and safe in your presence, to be challenged, to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn away from anything that would keep us from experiencing the fullness of your love. And then, God, as we see how we resist doing that in our relationships with others, God, would you call that to our attention? Make us aware of those ways that we're resisting that. We're not living into that with our neighbors, our friends, our family, our enemies. And, God, would you teach us slowly, gently, what it looks like to love well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.